Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. We're here tonight with Dr. Melanie Weiss, optometrist from Watertown, South Dakota. Dr. Weiss, thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Dr. Weiss, you are recovering from an opioid addiction. How does it feel to to say that? Well, first off, it's something that I never thought would be part of my story. You know, growing up, I had a vision of what I wanted my life to be like and, you know, when I wanted to retire and all those things. And um, drug addiction was never part of that story at all. So to say that still is a little bit surreal, but I'm also extremely blessed to be on this side of it versus where I was, you know, four years ago. Right. So before we get into the what happened, how how this can happen to, to someone like you, which I know is, is part of your story, here in, in 2020, why are you talking about this? Why are you with us? You know, a couple things, uh, a couple reasons. One is I felt when I was in the midst of my active addiction that I was the only healthcare professional or the only optometrist out there that had this issue. And so to be able to get my story out there so that if there's other people that are suffering or in the midst of their addiction, they hopefully won't be scared to come forward. Uh, And then also just to hopefully break the stigma of um, addiction. You know, it does not matter how much money you have or how educated you are. Uh, when those drugs grab a hold of your brain, they can completely change you as an individual. And, you know, my education and my background did not help me one bit once those drugs got into my system. Now, this was a, a slow path toward this this addiction, and it all kind of came to a head on September 30th, 2016. You want to describe that day? Yeah, so... Um, September 30th, 2016, I was, it was actually a Friday. I was seeing patients. I actually had about a 15 minute window in between two of my patients. And I walked out of the back door of my clinic down the street about a block and actually entered into a home of somebody that I knew. And I knew both of them were going to be gone at work. I went in their home, went through their cabinets, took their pain medication. And when I came out, the detectives were standing there waiting for me. And, you know, it's one of those things when I look back at that now that the shame part of it is the hardest thing to heal from because that's not who I am. I'm not a person that, you know, goes into people's homes and and takes things that are not mine, but that's who I became. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where the drugs led me. Uh, It completely and totally changes your frontal lobe as far as your reasoning and your thought process. And, and of course, this happened slowly and perhaps not surprisingly or the way that it so often does. It started with a, a, a valid and legit prescription for painkillers. Yeah, that's correct. I actually had an emergency appendectomy was my first surgery that I had. And of course, I was prescribed pain medication for that. I then had two other surgeries following that. Uh, so I had three surgeries within about a three-year time frame. 
And, you know, my tolerance just continued to build up and, you know, it happens slowly, but on the same hand, I feel like very quickly it went from me taking pain medication to curb my pain to taking it so I could get through the day. And this went on for how long? Uh, this actually went on for about eight years before I was arrested. Wow. And did people around you suspect this? You know, not until um, probably six months prior to my arrest, my staff actually came into my office and said, Melanie, there is something going on with you. We don't know what's wrong. Uh, we think that you're probably on the verge of a mental breakdown, and we think you need to take some time away from work. Because I had been calling in sick, leaving work early, not coming back from lunch on time. You know, and this is my own business that I built and have an immense amount of joy and pride in. And my my thought process was not to take care of my business. It was all about how do I get more pain pills to get me through the day? And how did you get them? Because did, did you have a doctor who was prescribing them for you? You know, initially, I would go back to my surgeons time after time asking for refill after refill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 10 years ago, those refills, unfortunately, were pretty easy to get. Yeah. Um, at some point, the surgeon said, nope, you're not getting any more refills. And I actually was at my mom's house. She had had a knee replacement. She had a bottle of uh, Vicodin sitting there. And I thought, you know, she doesn't need that. And I need that to get through the day. So I took some of her pain pills. And before you knew it, I was cleaning my entire ca uh, parents' cabinets out of any pain medication they had, then proceeded to take from my sister's homes, my brother's house, uh, my grandparents, anybody that was in my immediate family member's circle, I took their pain pills for my personal use. Um, once I cleaned out their cabinets, I then unfortunately thought it would be a good idea for me to start writing out prescriptions for people that I knew to fill on my behalf. I would make up things that ailments that I did not have. I would say that I had slipped on the ice and jarred my back and was unable to move, but I had a full day of patience, you know, and I would ask uh, an employee or uh, a neighbor or a friend if I wrote out this prescription for you know, 30 Vicodin, would you go fill this for me just this one time? And then I promise when my schedule slows down, I will get into the doctor and I'll find out what's wrong with my back or my neck or my knee or whatever ailment it was that I made up. And those individuals that I asked to fill those prescriptions for me, uh, they all did it. Uh, I didn't coerce them, but I was also just very convincing and I looked very normal. I mean, they they didn't know that I had a problem. And to be honest, I didn't think I had a problem at that time either. And and some of them you were you were paying to work for you or, you know, they, they knew you. Um, Absolutely. Right. So it, somehow you you managed to to keep the business going in this time. You your your marriage survived this. You have daughters. Um, 
you you had you were kind of going through the motions of a of a conventional life a successful life yes does it feel like yourself when you're when you're telling when you're retelling this story not not at all (laughs) (laughs) no uh you know every part of that lifestyle is one not how i grew up Uh, i grew up in a very normal loving two-parent home you know was taught right from wrong was taught to work hard um, you know, things that are not yours, you need to work hard for. And if you want something like that, you, you earn it. I wasn't taught to take from other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't taught to lie and deceive other people. And all of those things I did when I was in my active addiction. All right. Now that's interesting. You, you call it an active addiction and it, how, how do you get out of that? You know, for me, uh, my arrest, as hard as it was at the time, because it became very public in the town that I grew up in, which is also the town that I have my practice in, Mm -hmm. was the one thing that saved me. I truly know that if I was not arrested, I most likely would not be here today. My husband would not have a wife. My kids would not have a mom. My employees would not have the boss that they have right now. Um, So I'm very thankful for my arrest. It's what saved me. And it saved you because you, you didn't, you, you stopped being able to get away with this. You tell us what, what kind of the results were. Yeah. So when I was arrested, uh, my husband at that time who knew nothing about my addiction, uh, was kind of floored, uh, asked at that moment then if I would go to treatment. And immediately I said yes, because I did not want to live that life anymore. Even though I had absolutely everything anybody could ever want. I had three beautiful teenage daughters. I had a husband that adored me. I had a successful business. I had, you know, the nice house, the nice cars. I hated life. Hmm. And so to not have to live that way anymore and to hopefully, you know, be able to live a different life and to find that in treatment, I was willing to do that. And so I went to treatment at Hazelden Betty Ford in Center City, Minnesota, where they actually have a healthcare professionals program. Hmm. And that was amazing because it allowed me to be around other healthcare professionals that were in the same boat that I was. You know, I was in treatment with nurses and physicians and surgeons and dentists and counselors. And um, to see that, you know what, I'm not the only one out there that has this addiction. I'm not the only healthcare professional battling this. That was exactly what I needed at that time to know that I was not alone. Right. Right. And, and that perspective, obviously, I'm thinking would have been hard to get in, in Watertown. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so how long was the, was the treatment? Well, I thought I was going to go to treatment for 30 days. <laughs> uh, but once I had been there for, for a few weeks, they actually told me that because I was a healthcare professional and the length of time that I was 
you know, addicted to pain medication. They wanted me to stay for three months. And initially I told them I could not stay that long, that I had a business I had to try to run. I had a senior in high school and she was going to have her senior pictures. And I just, I needed to be home. And I was told by my counselor, you know, you can walk out that door Anytime, if you want to leave right now, you can go ahead and leave, but we're the healthcare professionals and we think this is what you need. And so that night I had a little bit of a meltdown in my room and, you know, prayed that I would be given some sort of clarity as to what to do. And when I woke up the next morning, it was crystal clear what I needed to do. I needed to do exactly what they told me to do because how I was living my life the last eight years had not panned out so well. Right, right. Yeah. And, um, and, and so you, you stayed for the three months. I did. And how was the return? The return was really tough. Um, you know, after I had been there for three months, I actually did not want to come back home. I didn't want to face reality. I didn't want to face my legal battles. I was facing six felonies and up to 15 years in the state pen. Uh, and Ooh. yeah, <laughs> well, that's a scary uh, thing to come home. Yeah, to, right? very scary. And yeah. then also just to be around and have to live life amongst m- the town and my peers and my patients that knew exactly what I had done. Because like I said, it was very public. It, you know, was you know, when I was indicted, when there was an arraignment hearing, when there was new information in the case, it was back in the newspaper, it was back on television, it was um, back traveling around Facebook. And so I knew that if I walked into, you know, Target, or I walked into a gas station, that those individuals were going to know what I did. And that shame was just really, really hard really hard to deal with at first. And was that internal pressure or external pressure or, or both? I mean, did, did people give you the cold shoulder? You know, they didn't. It was all internal. What I expected people to say, I expected people to um, turn their backs on me. Uh, I actually went to my daughter's high school. Uh, she was a cheerleader for boys basketball at the time. And I really wanted to see her cheer because I hadn't been able to because I was in treatment. And so when I walked into the high school arena, I was certain that people were going to boo at me. And I got the exact opposite. I had people coming up to me, giving me hugs, saying, Melanie, you can do this. I know you've got a big journey ahead of you, but we believe in you you know, don't give up fighting. You've got this. And that's exactly what I needed to hear from people. Uh, And that's the other message I want to give people is that, you know, if you can just give people some encouragement, sometimes that's all they need to just keep going or just to keep getting through that day. And that's, that's what helped me a lot. And, and is it because people not just had read your story, but they, they knew you or they knew of others who had struggled with a, um, with an addiction? I think a combination of a couple things. I think a lot of the people, they knew who I was. You know, they, they knew the type of person that I was 
15 years ago before all of this started. You know, they knew the type of doctor that I was. Um, They knew the type of community member I was. Um, And they also, you know, had a heart to know that, hey, my uncle went through this addiction or my daughter or my son or my spouse and addiction turns normal people into doing not normal things. Right, right. But you couldn't just slide back into life. You lost your license. I did, yeah. So I I ended up taking a plea agreement. I pled guilty to second-degree burglary and two counts of misdemeanor trespassing. And I was given a suspended imposition, which means that the felony is wiped off my record once I completed probation, which I completed probation. But my state board did take away my license, and I was unable to practice for a total of about two and a half years. And recently you got that I did. Uh, in January of 2019, I got my license back. I am on probation for a total of five years, so I have about four years of that probation left. Uh, I'm able to practice full scope optometry, other than I do not have a DEA license, which I am actually okay with. And <laughs> I don't need that. <laughs> um, right. And I'm also part of a program called HPAP, which stands for Health Professionals Assistance Program. And it's a program designed for healthcare professionals to do drug monitoring. So I'm monitored for a total of five years. I do random urine drug screens and then also nail and hair samples about every three to four months. So you've been clean. Is that the the right phrasing? And how does that feel? You know, absolutely amazing. Uh, The first probably nine months of being clean and sober were the hardest. Um, You know, my mind kept going back to, geez, maybe if I just got a hold of some pain pills, I would feel better or my anxiety would be lower. Uh, But I knew also I didn't want to go back to that lifestyle. So I would just you know, talk to my sponsor or go to a recovery meeting, uh, do something to get my head out of that thought. Uh, And it wasn't really until I was two years clean and sober before I finally started feeling like the old Melanie again. And, And that's the thing that I, you know, need to let people know that maybe are in early recovery is that it does take a long time to feel like yourself again. Yeah, yeah. That's a, uh, what a story. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for sharing your, your story. Uh, it's, it, you, you, you tell it so, so graciously, and I'm certain it's going to help people. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at wovoicesonline at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WL Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.